89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is June the 18th, 2013. Last week, I rambled on and on about Virginia Woolf. And I'm going to do more of the same. Uh, Bear with me. I don't know why it's a little difficult these days to talk about what the great ones. uh, Someone said that all I talked about was the literary folks, not the uh, political feminists. And I said, you really think there's a difference? It's true. It's true. There are books that are not, what is it, in the canon of literature. Uh, I think of Valerie Solanus, uh, her, uh, what was it she wrote? Scum, Manifesto, uh, Society for Cutting Up Men. <laughs> yes, definitely protest literature. She had what Virginia Woolf uh, didn't like. She had a bias. She had an axe to grind. Uh then, you know, people like Nawal el-Sadawi from Egypt, um, she is of opinion that it is uh, terrible torture. Uh, like, well, she's speaking of female genital mutilation. And that, of course, is, uh, what is it, the top of my list, The War Against Women. I suppose Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, would be the the book that announced the 1970s uh, women's liberation movement. Uh, For me, Simone de Beauvoir is a combination of both the literary and political. uh, I think she just, you know, tells the truth. (laughs) Anyway, I guess the late Andrea Dworkin would be the most... Uh, I don't want to say severe feminist, the most, not strident, that's not the word. She was such a sweet, soft woman. I I don't know, but she she used to say, I only write or say what men do. And I thought, well, yeah, that can get you killed. Uh, anyway, I thought that I would just dig into Virginia Woolf a little bit more because she's the one that started me thinking back when I was a schoolgirl. Uh, I wasn't sure what she was talking about, but 
it, what is it, over the years, it's kind of coalesced, gelled in my mind. Uh, I've got in my hand, I want to read you a little passage from A Room of One's Own, and then I'll go back to my my own essays. Uh, <laughs> here is Virginia Woolf. She's lecturing. She's part of a lecture, she says. A Room of One's Own. She gave a couple of lex- lectures to young women, college students, and from those she put together this essay on uh, money, right? She says to the girls, uh, women, when I ask you to earn money and have a room of your own, I'm asking you to live in the presence of reality. It's an invigorating life, it would appear, whether one can impart it or not. Uh, then she says that she would stop because it's the end of the lecture and she wants to say something that we would call upbeat today. Uh, mm-hmm. She says that uh, when you address women, you should have something uh, particularly exalting and ennobling to say. I implore you to remember your responsibilities, to be higher, more spiritual. I should remind you How much depends on you. What an influence you can exert upon the future. But those exhortations can safely, I think, be left to the other sex, who will put them, and indeed have put them, with far greater eloquence than I can compass. When I rummage in my own mind... I find no noble sentiments about being companions and equals and influencing the world to higher ends. I find myself saying briefly and prosaically that it's more, much more important to be oneself than anything else. Do not dream of influencing other people, I would say if I knew how to make it sound exalted. But think of things in themselves. I'm breaking in here. A little bell just rang in my head. Uh, my father used to say to me when I was very young and and quite, well, I'd just become affected. Yes, adolescence turned me into a very self-conscious creature. He would say to me always, uh, Why can't you just be natural? Uh, Why are you so affected? And I would say, by what, Bob? (laughs) Always called him Bob. Anyway, I am reminded, uh, yes, says Virginia Woolf, I am reminded when I dip into newspapers and novels and biographies that when a woman speaks to women, she should have something very unpleasant up her sleeve. Women are hard on women. Women dislike women. Women, but are you not sick to death of the word? I can assure you I am. Let us agree, then, that a paper lecture read by a woman to women should end with something particularly disagreeable. (laughs) But how does that go? What? What can I think of? Truth is, I often like women. I like their unconventionality. I like their subtlety. 
I like their anonymity. I like, well, I must not run on in this way. <laughs> and she goes on to talk about uh, all the contradictions and ambiguities in our tastes. Um, let's see. She talks about the uh, the history of England, the uh, the property laws, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm going to skip to the bit about Shakespeare's sister. This is from A Room of One's Own. It's the ending of this famous essay, and it kind of it kind of captures the spirit of what Virginia Woolf was trying to to say. She always said that you know there was more truth in fiction. I think she should have written criticism because this essay is so good. But anyway, she writes, I told you in the course of this lecture that Shakespeare had a sister. But don't look for her in Sir Sidney Lee's Life of the Poet. She died young. Alas, she never wrote a word. She lies buried where the omnibuses now stop opposite the elephant and castle. Now, my belief is that this poet, who never wrote a word and was buried at the crossroads, still lives. She lives in you and in me and in many other women who are not here tonight, for they are washing up the dishes and putting the children to bed. She lives, though, for great poets do not die. They are... Continuing presences, they need only the opportunity to walk among us in the flesh. This opportunity, as I think, is now coming within your power to give her, for my belief is that if we live another century or so, I'm talking of the common life which is the real life, not of the little separate lives which we live as individuals, if we live another century or so and have 500 a year, each of us, in rooms of our own, if we have the habit of freedom, the habit of freedom, I love that, uh, and the courage, and the courage to write exactly what we think, if we escape a little from the common sitting room and see human beings not always in their relation to each other, but in relation to reality, in their relation to the sky and the trees and all the rest of it. She says, if we face the fact, for it is a fact, that there is no arm to cling to, but that we go alone, and that our relation is to the world of reality, and not only to this world of men and women, then the opportunity will come and the dead poet who was Shakespeare's sister will put on the body which she has so often laid down. She will draw her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners, as her brother did before her. She will be born. As for her coming without that preparation... Without that effort on our part, without that determination that when she is born again, she shall find it possible to live and write her poetry. Well, that we cannot expect, for that 
would be impossible. I maintain that she would come. Change that too. I maintain that she will come if we work for her. And that so to work, even in poverty and obscurity, is worthwhile. Okay, Virginia Woolf said a century. It's been 75 years since she wrote this. Maybe in another 25 years we can say yes. Mm -hmm. It's been a century and now we are ourselves. We can, what is it, safely say that we write for ourselves. Uh, Somewhere else she has written, I remember a wonderful passage. She wrote about all the little women's novels that lie like pock-marked apples in the bins in the used bookstores around London. She said that uh, it was the flaw in the center that had killed them. They, uh, she said they were books in which the woman's values had been uh, destroyed in deference to others, right? Uh, always we try to get approval, that's it, uh, Now, this business of one century, I think, is best reflected in a wonderful book that I wish I had time to read from cover to cover on KPFA late at night. It would be wonderful. It's called Orlando. There's a movie out now with uh, 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 Tilda Swinton, right? That's it. Uh, She plays Orlando for Virginia Woolf. It's kind of a comic novel, actually. Orlando is the poet, uh, poet of the English language. At the beginning, she's an Elizabethan male. We see her having an affair with Queen Elizabeth I. Then she travels through history until she's modern. In the movie, they move her up that last 75 years and give her a motorcycle and put a child in the sidecar. That's not what Virginia Woolf did. Virginia Woolf brought her up to the 19... 30s, I believe. Let's see. Maybe late 20s. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, somewhere along the line about, I guess, about uh, the end of the 17th century, at some point, Orlando wakes up one morning and she is a female. She says the same person, just some little alterations there. Uh, And uh, She continues that way, struggling through the 18th century when she was a non-person or she had the legal rights of a child. Anyway, check out Orlando if you like uh, camp or high comedy. I I just think it's a wonderful movie. It's so funny because there's a poet in it called, uh, his last name is Green, and he's the the con man poet that we're all familiar with. He's really quite a character. You know, he writes... um, Good poetry for dilettantes, for aristocrats, makes his living that way. Anyway, Orlando and Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own come highly recommended. She's our, my prophetess. Uh, As I said, uh, some people are confused about this business of literature and protest. Uh, Most people say you can't be both. I believe that Virginia Woolf would be called an eco-feminist today. She does say 
that we can't be shrill. I think that's what she means. Yes, a shrill she means by that, that we would have an axe to grind and that uh, we would turn people off because we would have a bias. I remember being told what a bias I had. Someone told me I had a, a bias against Homer because <laughs> of the Iliad and the Odyssey being all about war and how women were so against war, so we would be against Homer's great uh, poem, epic poem, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Anyway, uh, I think they said to me, would you do away with the Iliad and the Odyssey? And I said, you think there's any chance? I uh, have an essay of my own about Virginia Woolf and I started it last week. I've come to the point where she published her own protest literature. It was called Three Guineas, and nobody liked it. It was published in 1938. By then, she had realized that it was too late for justice. Uh, it was long after she wrote A Room of One's Own. It's not nearly as charming as A Room of One's Own. Uh, by that time... She had put two and two together, and she recognized that fascism begins at home, in the cradle. She got it that the personal and the political are one and the same. Uh, I guess she looked at Hitler and uh, her, well, most of the people she knew didn't see the same things she saw. She looked at Hitler, and then she looked at her father, and she had a kind of aha experience. Uh, she was an out-and-out -out fascist, unlike her husband, Leonard Wolf. She believed that the, quote, beastly masculine, unquote, reaction was the source for the dark days descending on them. Aha, she's talking about World War Two coming. She killed herself in 1941. She drowned herself. She was in her late 50s by then, and she and Leonard had stockpiled, I think, some kind of gasoline or something, some, some way to kill themselves in case there was an invasion from uh, Hitler, Germany, so forth. Uh, she decided to go ahead and die alone, uh, Three Guineas is genuine protest literature. It denounces oppression and real evils. Uh, it was it was sure to turn off most of the male intellectuals she hung out with. Uh, her nephew, Quentin Bell, her biographer, says his own reaction at the time of publication was to feel that any attempt to involve a discussion of women's rights with the far more agonizing and immediate question of what we were to do in order to meet the ever-growing menace of fascism and war was to attempt a connection between two questions most tenuous. <laughs> he also adds that Virginia's positive suggestions are wholly inadequate. Even her friend, Vita Sackville West, did not like the book. Uh, Maynard K. Keyes said the argument was silly, 
Oh, and he hastened to add that in addition, it was not very well written. They always tag that into, you know, she's wrong, but of course, uh, she's also a terrible writer, you know, the sort of thing. Even today, any attempt to connect the war on women with the war on humanity in general meets with resistance. We know what that's all about, you know, trying to make uh, rape a war crime. We finally got that going. It's happening, but so slowly. Uh, I remember sitting with a young woman talking about the problem of date rape on her college campus, and her father entered the room, and the conversation became somewhat awkward. Uh, he didn't go along with our viewpoint. Both the young woman and I found that we switched to the master narrative, uh, his discussion of oppression in Central America, in order to assure the father that our real concerns were for the large issues, the serious stuff. <laughs> yes. Tolstoy used to write about war and marriage. I always said, who knows the difference? I remember when I read Wolf's essay, Three Guineas, uh, I compared it to Emily Bronte's essay, a schoolgirl essay she wrote back in the 19th century. It's called The Butterfly. It's a cruel and poetic sketch in which Emily Bronte sees the world as a vast destructive machine, a hierarchical and violent place in which all life exists to devour other life. <laughs> yes, biological units devour other biological units. Uh, of course, Emily is being didactic for the purposes of Victorian prose, and at the end... I'm afraid she does state that order can be forged from chaos. Transmutation can occur. Uh, <laughs> it was absolutely a given in Emily's world, you know, that things could be put right. Wolf, on the other hand, is modern. Her conviction is that things fall apart. Sometimes... When I take Virginia Woolf into the classroom, I find that I'm at a loss. I try to start with her, uh, her f discussions of family. Uh, I use To the Lighthouse. It's a terrific novel. Actually, there have been several films of To the Lighthouse. Uh, it was one in which, yes, Rosemary Harris, I think, played the mother. It's the most wonderful portrait of a mother I've ever read, and of course it's modeled on Virginia Woolf's mother, who died quite young, worn out by the demands of uh, her husband and all the children. Uh, for younger readers, I think that it's best to just go right to the heart of the matter. You know, how do you feel about your mother and father? Do they have equality? Do they believe in justice? Uh, Virginia Woolf's politics begin where everything begins, at home. At our mother's knee, it's going to say, <laughs> at our father's fist, oh dear. I'm sorry, that's uh, prejudicial and biased.
I'm one of those uh, who did feel the weight of physical abuse from a large male, but uh, it was not uh, life-threatening, but it was uh, severe. Uh, so, of course, that has caused me to be somewhat prejudiced. Uh, I see the fathers, most some, well, let's say I see a tendency among the fathers uh, to be heavy-handed. If you look around the world, I, I think I think this this can be proved. Uh, now, what I loved about To the Lighthouse was the maternal mythos of Virginia's mother. You know how she makes it all possible. She placates the father. That's part of the monumental Victorian illusion of the sacred nature of home. Letting go of that grand illusion is perhaps the hardest thing any modern writer has had to do. I think it's certainly the hardest thing I've ever had to do. We all know that uh, romance can kill you. Most of us still believe in the happy ending, in the notion that love will save our relationships, our families. Uh, <laughs> check out, yes, check out the television series The Borgias if you want to study a family and what uh, love-hate relationships are all about. Anyway, To the Lighthouse is a story about a family and how it is held together, for good or ill, by the mother and the mother's illusions. Now, Wolf's mother, Julia, died in her late 40s. Her sister, Stella, died two years later. Virginia and her sister Vanessa were then pressed into service by the father, Leslie Stephan. Julia was the woman Wolf describes as the angel in the house. Now, that's a wonderful image, yes, the lovely vine in the corner of the room. Uh, the mother, the house angel, is the center of gravity, the inner sanctum, the force, you know, which glues everything together. Perhaps if she were removed, and she is, things could fall apart. Yes, then we'd see where we stand. Uh, Wolf believes that the mother provides a support system on which all patriarchal assumptions can rest. Anyway, Virginia rejected the role of the angel in the house. She's neither a sacred cow nor a maternal monster. She's only an artist. As an artist, she claimed the right to be let alone, to abdicate what were feminine responsibilities in her day. She writes that she uses her friends, that she depends on her husband, Leonard. Uh, oh, dear, I don't have time to finish this marvelous essay. Uh, Virginia Woolf paints these grim pictures of... Uh, Life, let's say, life in the early 20th century. Uh, she says she would rather have money than the vote. That's what it's all about. Yes, poverty is what uh, prevents us from being creative. That's her point of view. She writes that woman has a chance uh, because all the older forms of literature were hardened and set. By the time she became a writer, the novel alone was young enough to be soft in her hands. 
Who shall say that even this most pliable of all forms is rightly shaped for her use? No doubt we shall find her knocking that into shape when she has the free use of her limbs and providing some new vehicle, not necessarily in verse, for the poetry in her, for it is the poetry that is still denied outlet. Virginia Woolf believed that poetry should have a mother as well as a father. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air this time next week. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Walk in light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of annual Juneteenth Festival returns this year along a five-block stretch on Adeline Street between Ashby and Alcatraz Streets in South Berkeley. The festival will kick off its 26-year celebration on Sunday, June 23rd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and will feature arts, crafts, music, cultural events, ethnic foods, and a kid zone. Ashby BART is the easiest access to the event. The festival benefits the activities of the Berkeley Juneteenth Association. For more information about the festival, call 510-655-8008.